Hi friends, it's Susan Blackwell from The Spark File, your one-stop shop for creativity where our doors are open. And if you smell something delicious, that's because Laura Camion and I have been cooking up something special, something designed to make a big difference in people's creative lives. Enter The Brave Creative, a free five-day guided adventure to rediscover the vitality energy, and possibility in your creative process. Whether you're a writer, a performer, a baker, a candlestick maker, navigating the creative process can be a bear. But never fear, there's power in numbers at the Spark File. So let's link arms and make the trip together. It's May 13th through 17th, 7 p.m. Eastern, less than one hour per day. And if you can't join live, don't worry about it. You can watch the replay. Join us by going to thesparkfile.com to register. And hey, if you're not familiar with The Spark File, first of all, welcome to the podcast. Secondly, we work with hundreds of creatives of all different kinds who are ready to take their next big step. We help folks fear less and create more in a community that is so fun and vibrant. And if you have joined us before, know that we are going deep with the Brave Creative. So buckle up, Buttercup. It is going to be an awesome adventure. Go to thesparkfile.com to register, but do it soon because it all starts May 13th. Thesparkfile.com. Register now. The Sparkfile podcast may contain profanity and other adult content. Please use your discretion. inspires me I dump it in my spark file to be something that I want to make or how I want to be I pump it in my spark file I jump into my spark file let's open up the spark file right there hey. <laughs> the spark file Welcome. This is your one-stop gnipkin up for all sorts of creative inspiration. <laughs> I'm Lauren Camion. I'm Susan Blackwell. We are makers who make all sorts of things. If That's you're joining right. us for the first time. And if you're like us, you like making stuff all the time, you know that sometimes the wellspring of inspiration gets a little dry. So we're on the lookout for fresh ideas, images, inspiration that spark our creativity and pique our curiosity, things that inspire us to get off our asses and make things like this podcast. Or a piece of pottery. Or a graphic novel that documents your entire 16th year oh, on the planet Earth. Nice. That's right. So every episode, we're going to reach into the spark file and exchange some sparks. And then we're going to talk to some folks who spark us as well. And if you're not careful, you just might get your sparks re-sparked. So without further ado, <laughs> let's open up <laughs> the spark mm-hmm. file. Um, Listen, in case you are joining us for the first time, Mm. welcome. Welcome. Hi. In case that introduction didn't make sense to you, we really are on the hunt for creative ideas or just ideas like things that give us when we hear it when we run into it when we Mm. see it it like gives us a visceral response that we could we could utilize for something creative or you could utilize for something creative you could take it that is the point of this bucket of bullshit that's right it's for you the listener yeah Take it. It's some ideas. Take some it. Shit we didn't want inspired. it. You we know what? Want Listen, I don't want these ideas. Please take them off my hands. Please. 
please. No, um, no but today, seriously, Cams? I'm good. I'm yeah. good, Susan. Yeah, I got some good news and then some disappointing news cool. today. What's that? Well, I read that they um, used DNA evidence to figure out who Jack the Ripper was. <gasps> yeah, but then I read that that was probably bullshit. What? Yeah, it, it, what it a totally build-up letdown. I know, right? That's what I'm saying. I got some good news and some bad news. Apparently, they did publish, like for the first time, they published um, this DNA results. And it was a guy who was always like on their list of suspects. Where the fuck do they have DNA that's DNA been kept? From one of the knives that was left at the scene. <gasps> But I was wondering, how did they up? get this guy's DNA? Has it been in a ye olde refrigerator all this time? I don't know. I don't know. I think that's part of why it's questionable. But, um, yeah, so like they, but they this was like, this was the good and the bad. I was like, yes, I feel some sense of completion. I've been on one of those Jack the Ripper tours in London. Do you like this? Uh, I don't know why. I just feel like it's one of those I things. I think of myself as like being more some true crime on. Really? <laughs> yes. Um, You're I, more true crimey than me, probably, but yeah, I still. But you. Jack the Ripper. Jay the R. I mean, I've like walked those streets, and there's people obviously who make a living and talk about taking it and making it. There's people who've made a living creating these tours out of the spots where Jack the Ripper <sighs> killed people. Yeah. Um, I don't and, think I need that. I don't you know need what? That. I gotta say, <laughs> sorry, I was gonna say it brought it to life for me in a way, and I was like, no, that's not right. Um, it did, did bring, it make it real. Uh, it did make it real, and plus, you know, in London, How everything is you know, seven hundred years old. So you're sort of like, this really is the exact spot. It's not like oh, fourteen buildings have been built in this spot oh, since then. It's like, it's like the blood this ran through these cobblestones. That's right. Ugh. Yeah. Good. Yeah, it made it real. But now I'm a little bit amazed because if you think about it, he only killed five people. And sorry, that's five people too many. But it's amazing but how that comparative lore has stuck. Yeah. 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 It's really interesting what captures the public's imagination and what that's sticks. Right. That's right. It's what? not like it's the only unsolved crime. I mean, it's just amazing that exactly. it has stuck with it's us. It's got legs, it's baby. Got legs. It's Somebody got legs. Somebody should do a musical about that. Wait. Weren't you and I talking about Casanova? Yes. Yes. I was like, who were we talking about this recently? Is, Casanova. About like, like, how many ladies do you have to get down with that's right. that still we call... 400 years later, your Cas legacy yeah. is how many ladies you slept with. Yeah. Right? That's something. I mean, come on. That's what I thought. Movies, That's what poetry, mm -hmm. Casanova. Okay. I'm going to name my first baby Casanova. These are the things we typically talk about, but it's what we're talking about today. This is what's happening today. Um, do you want to get into it? Uh, you know I do. Um, do who did, who, did we decide who's going mm -hmm, first? Mm-hmm. You're gonna go first because oh, I was taking a step. Okay, I'm do. I'm. I have. I'm doing an experiment tonight. Okay. Today, I'm going to share what I, <laughs> you, you have a crazy so, look on your face. Are you excited? I'm so excited. Are you excited? Yeah, I, I know. Am. I was trying to explain to somebody when we sit down to record these, it feels, it does feel like I'm about to get it's a like, present and I'm about to give be? a present. It feels like a gift exchange. Um, I got you this candle. Um <laughs> but it's from anthropology i Hooray! love this candle um today i'm going to share what i'm calling a reverse spark oh 
This is, what a, is reverse. a reverse spark. I've got, I'm making up a lot of terminology. We've okay. got our dark spark. This is a reverse spark. Okay. I thought it might be fun. Okay. I could be full of shit, but I thought it might be fun and interesting to share with you and listeners, you, something that I made and then track it back to its root sparks. Oh. Is that crazy? Wow. I just realized like I rewind. went to high school with a kid named Ralph Sparks. Hey, Ralph? I went to school with Lance Sparks. Shit. This is crazy. You know what's crazy? People who have verbs as their last name. I loved it. He was an athlete, and I was just like... Steve Burns? Oh, How badass Sparks. is that? Yeah, he burns. What's Steve like? Sparks. Steve Burns. Mm, I don't know. Um, okay, so today's okay. reverse spark. I'm just going to go ahead. You know, Some of you will know this. Some of you won't. But it is the Golden Palace. So the end creative product was a piece that I made called The Golden Palace. And if you haven't heard it, it's basically a story with music. And I made it in collaboration, Tiny Tip of the Hat, with Hunter Bell, Heidi Blickenstaff, Jeff Bowen, Larry Presgrove, and Michael Barres. Yay! You can listen to it on my website, or better yet, go, go buy it on iTunes. iTunes. Just go buy it. Spend that 99 cents. You got it. It's well worth it. I'm going to say, you can't get a lot for 99 cents these days, but I think but you, you can get, get a gold. Is it 99 palace? cents or is it like... It's probably a dollar ninety nine. It's now. still worth it. I don't know. It's still worth I don't it. Know. You mm-hmm. need it more than you need a candy bar. Um, so the, the piece is about my dad who grew up in a big old house full of kids and that family was poor and I mean, they were kind of neglected and he would sometimes go to school and he sometimes wouldn't. And when he was at school, they taught reading via mm-hmm. repetition mm. and he was a good mimic. So even though he couldn't read, uh. they didn't det- Protect his illiteracy until about third grade. Wow. But once they did and they got him on the good path, he actually, my dad is really intelligent, really, really intelligent. And he's also, in addition to being a wonderful father, he's also a beautiful writer and a poet, though if you tell him that, he cannot cannot Mm. accept the compliment. Mm. And as recently as last week, I was having a conversation with him and I told him just in passing, I was like, well, the thing is, like, you're a really good writer. Blah, blah, blah. And he's like, no, no. Like, he oh. cannot take it in. So the Golden Palace was my way of talking about my father and his gifts and his insecurities and how I inherited gifts and insecurities from him, oh. but how I also stand on his shoulders because of the things that he and my mother exposed me to and the education that they supported. So, mm-hmm. um, but it's also about how I really did used to feel like there wasn't... <sighs> There, there wasn't a place for me in the world as a creative person, or there wasn't a place for me at the table. Mm. And I just want to read you like a little bit from yes, the Golden please. Palace. Yes, please. Um, but seriously, buy this on iTunes because it's good. It's good. I'm super proud of it. <laughs> and modest as hell. Um, <laughs> so this is from the, the Golden. Oh, this is from the musical Now Hear This, by the by. Just get the whole cast recording. It's it. just, just splurged. Filled with Give gems. yourself a gift. There you go. The Golden Palace is where the beautiful people and the great thinkers of this and previous generations mm. convene to bask in each other's brilliance and to create all the great works of art. It's all going down in the Golden Palace. Michelangelo's David, To Kill a Mockingbird, the X-Men. Yes. Great work. Worthy work. And the people that populate that place and pump out those important paintings and poems and pieces are deeply intelligent, stunning, clean, privileged people. There is no room in the Golden Palace for girls like me. 
weird girls, mm. girls who come from what I come from. So that's just like a little tiny piece. Yeah. But it really, I spent um, a real good chunk of my life feeling like mm. that. Mm. So I wanted to just share with you where some of my sparks came from, just as a sort of an illustration. Sparks, as we've discussed on this podcast many times, can come from so many different places. And this is where this these this sparks one, yes. these are these is sparks, you guys. Um, so it all started when Malcolm Gladwell came out with a book called Outliers. Mm. I didn't look up what year it was published. It was it's around that time. A time ago. Yep. So most people associate that book. Uh, outliers with the theory of 10,000 hours. Have you heard that before? Do you know t when people are like, oh, 10,000 hours? Um, no. 10,000 hours. It, Malcolm Gladwell posited that 10,000 hours of deliberate practice are needed to become world-class in any field. Yes. So yes. Um, he, he, it was his thought that the Beatles and Bill Gates could become the Beatles and Bill Gates because in addition to other advantages like socioeconomical and place, they were in the right place at the right time, mm -hmm. they had 10,000 hours to practice their specialties. Like Bill wow. Gates had access to a personal computer because of like where his mom worked. Mm -hmm. They figured out a way to like rig the, um, I can't remember what it's called, but like, basically to have as much time on that personal computer as they wanted. So before personal computers were out in the world, he, he was clocking one. his 10,000 yeah. hours. Yeah. The Beatles like, you know, like played and played and played and played and played and played and yep. played and played and played for years before they became like the band the that the world was exposed to. But 10,000 hours is not what I think of when I think of outliers. When I think of outliers, I think of the work of a sociologist named Annette LaRoe. I had the audiobook. I'm going to burp. Do it. You're welcome. I had the audiobook Outliers, and I remember hearing about Annette's work for the first time. Her work articulated something that I felt so keenly, but I didn't have the language for. And when I heard it articulated, I had such a strong visceral response to it. Like, I remember so clearly sitting in the passenger seat of the car and hearing this and just getting super mad, like mm. really, really angry, like mm. a very strong visceral reaction. But let's back that shit what up. What was it? Girl, I'm going to unpack you it. Better you better tell me. Um, what the information I'm about to share comes largely from Wikipedia and also from an awesome free online course offered by the Stanford Center on po Poverty and Inequality. Mm. I stumbled onto this cool, free online course that you can take anytime. And uh, it's both like, I think you can do like online work and there's videos and stuff like that. So she has a video, Annette LaRoe. And in it, she says... We live in an unequal society, and we know that families matter. Families are a big predictor of children's outcomes in many areas. Depending mm. on the family you're raised in, you can have different levels of health, income, education. Right? Yep. We all That's know right. that. That's right. So she conducted this study, and she examined parenting in middle-class families and working-class and poor families. They've studied 88 families, and within that, there was a mix of African-American families and white families because she wanted to understand the impact that social class made right, right. on uh, the difference in children's lives. 
Her work then argues that regardless of race, social economic class will determine how children cultivate the skills that they use in the future. So mm-hmm. like more than like the color of your skin, wow. your social economic class wow. will be a major determiner. Interesting. Determiner, determining factor. Mm-hmm. I'm making up words. So she's, she made it very clear all the families in the study loved their children, but they had different ideas about how they would raise their children. Mm-hmm. And I think when I have historically thought of parenting styles, I think, oh, those parents are strict. Those parents are lax. Those parents are overbearing. Those parents are absent. Those parents are neglectful. Those parents spoil their kids. But in her work, she boiled it down to two ways of raising kids, concerted cultivation and natural growth. Hmm. Concerted cultivation and natural growth. So I think of concerted cultivation as those families that have very structured schedules. They teach children how to advocate for themselves. And I think of natural growth as throwing the kids in the backyard and then playing until dinner time Mm -hmm. and then come again Mm -hmm. and not sassing back. Like Mm -hmm. just in a nutshell. But those are my words. In Annette's words, natural growth, which was a type of parenting that was exhibited more in working class and poor families, The parents were very clear. They would give directions. There wasn't a lot of talk back from the children. There wasn't a lot of questioning that came from the kids. When concerted cultivation parents gave direction, the children would talk a great deal. They would protest. They would whine. They would badger to get what they wanted, right? So by definition, wait, were you going to say something? I was going to say that doesn't sound good. The way you described concerted cultivation sounded pretty good. That doesn't sound... Well, here's the thing. Neither, and and Malcolm Gladwell made this clear in Outliers, and Annette makes it clear in her work that it's not that either is better or worse. Okay. And there's certainly other factors that would inform, but mm-hmm. but it does set the child and eventually the adult that the child grows into up for diff- a different life. Got it. Got it. Because if you're a kid who, who the parents, like, you're basically being taught how to advocate for yourself. Yeah. Part of that means arguing and saying, no, true, I, true. you know, yep. for like, I'll tell you why I should get to stay up an hour later every right. night. Or, you Instead know. Instead of just like, be silent, you're a kid, yeah, shut up like, and go to bed. Like the yeah. adult, <laughs> as Billy, as they say in Sling yeah. Blade, the adults are talking now. That's right. Um, so, my words I? Interesting. Um, so natural growth, which is more in working class and poor families, parents were very clear. They'd give directions. There wasn't a lot of talk back from um, blah, 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 and concerted cultivation. When the parents give direction, there's blah, 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 blah whining and badgering and advocating. And, and yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, so by definition, the working class parents and the poor parents did not have a college degree. So my parents, I always think of my parents as being very working class. Mm-hmm. Um, but eventually, eventually they got there with their education. Like mm-hmm. it took longer, but they did get there. They, did they finish their degrees, uh, after having kids? My dad went back and got his MBA this, and we graduated from graduate school the same Come year. On. Yeah. That's pretty cool. Yeah, it is. That's and really I just cool. think how... So he bootstrapped himself, you yeah, know, Yeah. but there was a lot of like factory work and mm-hmm. a lot of like, you yeah. know, hard, some manual labor yeah. until that. Um, 
But she says, um, many people in the working class, many working class and poor parents are high school dropouts and also stresses that it's important to remember that at least 15%, at least 15% of Americans are functionally illiterate. So it's reasonable um, on the part of those parents to turn education over to the school. Mm-hmm. They're waiting for the, te- the, te- the teacher's job is teaching and those um, natural growth parents are waiting for the teachers to send them a form to give them information. Mm-hmm. Like it's mm-hmm. a more, I will respond to it when it comes. Yeah. By contrast, the concerted cultivation parents were very energetic and taking the lead with the children's education in school. So for instance, a mother, uh, this, is, this is all Annette's work, mm-hmm. but I'm mother would have the school number in her cell phone and another mother in the study badgered the school to admit her child into the gifted program even though the child wasn't really qualified mm-hmm. for it but that's mm-hmm. sort of like aggressive yeah for the for the sake of the kid like you know and mm-hmm. the, the kid sees that and is like that's how we operate like that's mm-hmm. and sees that being modeled does that make sense it does it does just Hearing what you've heard thus far, let me read a little more, and then I'm curious to yeah. know where okay. you feel like okay. you all fell in mm-hmm. this. Mm-hmm. Do you? Was yeah. that what you were going to say? No. What were you no. going to say? Say it. Say it with your mouth. I, I was just curious about because uh, I feel like where it, this might be headed is that are are you going to say? I don't want to spoil it, but that the concerted effort, the concerted, concerted cultivation, cultivation parents, their kids got further ahead than the rest of us. Yeah. Spoiler alert. It's it's is it phenomenal research. Fascinating. Yeah. I guess because as I'm listening, my dad was a teacher, and so I'm thinking of it like from his point of view and the downside of parents who yes. get involved like that. Yeah. There is a downside. Um, yeah. So yeah. that's where my mind was going to, but hold hey, that. And when I we will. get there, I, I want to talk about okay. that. Okay. Coming so, back to it. Um blah 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 blah. So middle class, that is concerted cultivation children, tend to be very busy. They have all those organized activities that mm-hmm. are structured by adults, allegedly for fun and leisure, but there are a lot <laughs> like school, like soccer, ballet, yeah. and Sunday school and all that yeah. jazz yeah. lessons. Um, working class and natural growth children mm. had many important skills, like they could play outside by themselves. Yeah. They're much nicer to their siblings than middle class children. Yeah, like less like meanness. Like, yep. Um, so I would say the way she, these are my words, not hers, but yeah. maybe like a little more easily disciplined. Um, mm-hmm. The natural growth children had a way of create of having creativity and autonomy that the middle class kids didn't have. But those middle class concerted cultivation kids had skills that were valued by schools and other institutions. So they learned how to interact with people in positions of authority. They learned how to be extremely organized from all of their extremely organized activities. Mm-hmm. And they learned how to negotiate with people mm-hmm. because mom, I should get to stay up an extra hour later on a school night. Um, they learned how to use language. And because those school those skills are valued in schools and jobs, those those concerted cultivation kids had advantages that the working class and poor kids Did didn't not. slash don't have. That's right. Um, wow. Yeah. So when she did, she did this work, she did yeah. the study of these 88 families, and then she followed up with those children over the next decade. 
And the natural growth children, she said about half aspired, uh, the parents aspired for their kids to go to college, about half, but fewer than that take the basic college prep classes that are required and even fewer take the SAT. Mm. And of those even fewer apply and attend college classes. So they're extremely intelligent, successful natural growth children who do want to go to college and their parents want mm-hmm. them to go to college. But but again, this is Annette saying there are formidable barriers to making that happen. And it's not only about money, it's about the cultural knowledge and having the information. Mm-hmm. So one that she was, it's a beautiful, the way that, that course, the little bit that I looked at is, it's really beautifully structured because I could see how just that tiny little five-minute video could be super helpful. One thing that she recommended that um, if if parents in a natural growth setting were interested in providing, like interested in their kid going to college and they don't have that information, she recommended basically basic networking, which is talk to people at your church, talk to Mm -hmm. people in your extended family network or in your child's school, and maybe get their help to translate Mm -hmm. what some of those, what she called critical steps in achieving the American dream. And I think my parents actually, my parents don't fit easily into, they're not just like working class and poor, because even though they both came from, such uh, tough backgrounds, mm-hmm. tough backgrounds. Like they, they really provided us with a bunch of culture, and they really did advance their generation, and took us to see plays, and mm. like took us to workshops that we thought they thought we would be interested in. Um, but it was only as a, an adult that I saw. I, and it, P.S., it was a goddamn shockeroo when I saw children and young adults that were being raised in an environment of concerted cultivation mm-hmm. where their parents were like working to get them into sc- special schools and making sure that they were in programs that would give them an advantage, like having the foresight to be like, yeah. well, they might want to go to an Ivy League college, so we're going to have to get those activities going now. Do you know what I mean? Yeah. I was yeah. like, what? But there was also, it can be, like you were saying, it can be fraught. There's pressure. There's like all this like really intense networking and all this stuff that I'm just like, oh boy, that makes me tired. But those concerted cultivation children, they do have more resources. They can be tutored. They can apply to all sorts of safety schools. There's more resources provided by their parents, but often it's what Annette calls invisible. And then the kids proclaim themselves to be the ones who did it. Like when they get into the school, That's uh, right. their first, you know, That's first right. choice school. And anything can be fixed by mom and dad if yeah. they get themselves yeah. into a predicament. Yeah. They didn't have that. They don't necessarily yeah. see the many, many efforts that went into it on the part of their parents and their class position that mm-hmm. made that outcome possible. Mm-hmm. Um, so a few more differences. A child that has been concertedly cultivated will often express greater social prowess in social situations involving formality or structure attributed. You know, it's that mm-hmm. classic, like you walk into a, like a fancy restaurant or a fancy wedding right. and it's like, uh, like, yeah, like being able yeah. to like easily fit like into acclimate. those. Yeah. Yeah. Easily yeah. like pa- know pass. your audience. Yeah. Um, 
And but I want this is to your point. While this pattern of child rearing holds no innate positive qualities, it has been linked to an increase in financial and academic success. Mm-hmm. But negative considerations have included an overburdened sense of entitlement, potentially <laughs> disrespectful behavior towards authority figures, lack of creativity, <laughs> and the psychosomatic inability to play or relax. Well, sure, because they're not really solving those problems. They're not really like it started out talking about like them learning to advocate for themselves, but really during those years, like mom and dad are advocating for them. Yeah. And that might be a good thing to model, but it sounds like it didn't all, it doesn't all end up great. What were you, were you to say more about like when your dad, your dad was a teacher and a coach and were there yeah. those parents that were pushing well, it? It's weird because like there are certain things that I relate to on both of those different mm-hmm. descriptions. Cause mm-hmm. we were definitely working class. My mom didn't graduate from college. She met my dad. My dad was a teacher and a coach. And, um, but when we went to school, there was no solving our problems for us. My dad, like I could not come home and be like, ah, yeah. I, have, I got a B plus. Yeah. Mr. Annan will round up my grade. My dad was like, you great, uh, figure that out. Yeah, I was. I was. I was like, I only <gasps> got one B. No, I mean, I earned all my A's, Susan. Um, just kidding. <laughs> oh, obnoxious. I, I grubbed. I grubbed. No, but like like um, the idea, I had friends who would go home and be like, oh, and Mr. Vandeska doesn't like me. And their parents would like buy that. And my dad would be like, why doesn't he like you? What are you doing to cause that? Instead of why going in and being that? like, I'd like to have a meeting with Mr. Oh Vanessa. my God. Yeah. My dad, no way. Would I know. Be like figure that out. I work with a lot of teachers who they like were in theater departments yeah. and when their child doesn't get cast in oh, something, my God. then the parent becomes, you know, Mm-mm. just this nightmare parent. Yeah. And I'm glad that wasn't, I didn't have that. Yeah, me too. Me too. My dad, there was just no way. And I knew that was just never going to be an excuse. There was always, it was always on me to figure that out. And what was the lesson to be learned? If you didn't get cast, what could you have done differently? If you didn't get that home run, why not? And I've also been privy to like an incredibly close proximity to, um, even like college age and post college age adult children who are so supported by their parents that mm-hmm. they like help them. I don't know why I'm so astounded when I say this, but here I go <laughs> help them get jobs. Like when I said it, I I was like, for half the world or for some portion of the world, they're like, yeah, of course they, we help, of course, that's how the world turns. And I'm like, I can't imagine, Mm -mm. I can't imagine being in a position where my mother or father networked on my behalf to get me an interview, to get a job at the, oh my God, this is the, the, but it was, I wasn't until I was adult that I was like, learned that this is how the world turns for a lot of people. That's true. Yeah. That is so true. So. Not for us, Susan. We're just hardworking scrappers. <laughs> strivers. Two scrappy kids. They're, so, but her book, Annette LaRose's book is called Unequal Childhoods. Yeah. Yeah. And it encourages us to better right. understand the impact that social class has on our educational and life choices and such decisions as who we will marry, where we will live, right. how we will find jobs. Um, mm-hmm. That that social class is a huge part of that. Mm-hmm. So when I learned about, so that's a bunch about Annette Leroux and her yeah. awesome work. When I learned about concerted cultivation versus natural growth, 
I you realized were... our family provided a little bit, a little bit of concerted cultivation, but mostly was a family of natural growth. Mm-hmm. Like was really like, go play outside. That's right. Come in when it's dinner time. But I'll tell you, I got, as I said, I got so mad and I thought, I mean, really angry. Mm-hmm. I was angry for kind of a while. And I thought, what could I have been if I had been supported, Oof. if I had known what educational opportunities were available to me, if right. I had been trained to speak confidently to adults, et cetera, yeah. et cetera, et cetera. And so much of this stuff came to me later in life mm-hmm. and I pursued it to fill mm-hmm. in the pieces that were missing. So yeah. I used to be mad at, here's a list, my high school guidance counselor, mm. my parents, my former teachers, because I thought, what could I have, where, how far could I have right. come already That's right. if I had had more guidance? But then I realized all those people were raised in an environment of natural growth too. I was surrounded by natural growth people. Of course. Of course. So a little bit about my mom. This is not in Golden Palace, um, but a little bit about my mom. So my mother attended an all-girls Catholic school and graduated first in her class. Wow. Yeah. As a valedictorian, she's, it's funny because hard scrabble. Yeah. Yeah. Really tough upbringing. Um, Just like. I think they, her parents had a little bit of money, but, uh, but my grandfather was very, very um, tight with a dollar. And so for the, there was a long time where my mom only had her school uniform, her Catholic school uniform mm-hmm. and her pajamas. Oh my gosh. That was it. Oh. That was all she had until she taught herself to sew so she could have clothes. Wow. Yeah. So my mother attended this this all-girls Catholic school. She was first in her class. As valedictorian, she was offered a full-ride scholarship to the University of Dayton. And the headline, we have the article, my mother saved it. It's yellowed oh, in a no. drawer somewhere. The headline in the Dayton paper read, high school senior turns down juicy <gasps> UD scholarship to go to nursing school. Oh. And I remember, like, as an adult, I remember reading that when I was younger, and I was just like, I thought it, it was what? mind-blowing. And as an adult, I said, can we talk? Can we can we, can we talk, talk about, about this? Why did you turn that down? And she said, in truth, she had never even considered taking the scholarship. She didn't have a lot of social skills. She, yes, how could you, if you only didn't have how any clothes, you couldn't go out in your pajamas like, or your even, school uniform. Like, so yeah, she was, yeah. she didn't have a lot of social skills. And the idea of going to university frightened her. Her parents didn't really prize education and none of her teachers, not not a single teacher ever offered her any guidance mm-hmm. or challenged her and said, you can do this. Oh not a one. Or wow. maybe they figured she was all set in her plans, which she felt like was also true. She planned on getting married and going into nursing and that's what she did. How perfect. And nobody ever challenged that's it. That's right. So all of that's this right. is to say they didn't know. Right. But I also think that, and, and P.S., I think we all do the best we can and they did yeah. great. Like they did great. Yeah. But also I think, or I, I believe for myself, you get to a certain age and you can't be mad at the past like you that. Can't. Like You can't carry it on. You can't. I can't. Yeah. I, I feel like I have to take responsibility for how I am going to engage in the world and That's how right. I am going to move through the world. And you can't just be like, I can't believe I wasn't raised in an environment where my parents taught me to network. Like, yeah. fuck off, Susan. So yeah. 
So that's that's another chunk of it. So there's Annette Laroe, right? There's my real parents, my real awesome parents. So then I would, um, my friend Hunter Bell, Jeff Bowen, Heidi Blake and Steph, Larry Prescott, Michael Brass made, uh, and produced by Lauren Camion, made this show, title of show. And it was this musical. And we, Hunter Bell and I started co-teaching like creativity workshops. And we would get asked, like, how did you guys go from four friends sitting at home making Project <laughs> Runway jokes to four friends sitting on a Broadway stage making, making Project, Project Runway, Runway jokes? jokes? And Hunter used to say this thing near the beginning of class um, that I was so, that really struck me. And the teacher became the student. He would say um, <laughs> that for a long time, we, he and I, believed that somewhere far from us, there was a place, an other place, where people who were different from us more well-educated, more attractive, more intelligent, more feeling, we're making all the great stuff. Mm-hmm. Um, but what we wanted ourselves and the, our students to realize is that if we wanted to make art, we could make it. If we had a story to tell or a song to sing, we could sing it. Mm-hmm. And hearing him say that was a real breakthrough for me. And simultaneously living through a creative process mm-hmm. where side by side with my friends, I was making my own work. That was a real breakthrough for me. And I realized, yeah, that, yeah I could yeah. be raised in an environment of natural growth and enjoy all the positive benefits of that and still learn how to navigate institutions and grant proposals and all sorts of social interactions. I could learn to speak to all the people as if they were my peers, which was the thing that led me to coin the phrase, no one is above me, no one is below me, haters to the left. It comes out of this because I was like, I felt for so long, like I was um, less than or subjugated myself to other people because mm-hmm. I thought everybody had this concerted cultivation thing figured out. And then I was like, don't do that to yourself, Susan. Yeah, they don't. Um, and that, at the end of the day, if I chose to, I could make anything that I wanted to make. So, any questions, students? <laughs> I wrote The Golden Palace just to organize my thoughts and get my arms around all of this and to come to peace with all of it to come to peace because I, I all of this stuff my feelings about what my parents what they I don't want to they can tell their story the way they want to tell it but I just think that in so many ways they had a really tough upbringing yeah and I wanted to make peace with what they came from what I came from how how they advance things so that I could go to college and study what genuinely interests me, mm-hmm. um, how they pulled themselves up from their bootstraps, how it's not perfect, but it's not perfect for anybody. Right. It's not perfect for anybody. That's right. And ultimately that whether you were raised in an environment of concerted cultivation or natural growth, it's your choice to exercise your creativity. And he may not, he may have worked in a factory, but my dad is also a poet. Yeah. And I may not have gone to Juilliard, but I took the path that I took and I'm wildly creative. Yeah. Right? That's right. So by the end of the piece, spoilers, but please go buy it for $1.99 on iTunes. <laughs> oh um, I come to a different conclusion, and that is this there <sighs> is a golden palace. Mm. It's a Chinese restaurant located at 321 Nashua Street in Milford, New Hampshire. It's not over the horizon. It's not out of reach. The Golden Palace is anywhere we make it. It's anywhere we make anything we want to make. And there is room for all of us. 
illiterate boys, the fathers and factory workers and poets that they become, awkward girls with weird faces and strange ideas. We all belong here. Mm. And that is how I came to write The Golden Palace. Hashtag reverse spark. Reverse spark. I like that a lot, Susan. Oh, because I think people don't always know, like, oh, I could be like reading an article or reading some statistics on, you know, someone's research, this and that. And and out of that spring a creative idea. So this is the point I was trying to make with this. Um this isn't just like I I mean, I am delighted by the fun stories that Laura Camion tells me when we do this podcast. Damn fucking lighted. But my point is, if you hear something here or or you bump into something somewhere in the world and it gives you a strong feeling, and sometimes that strong visceral feeling is like, this is making my blood boil. And sometimes that strong feeling is, this is making me laugh yeah. or this is making my eyeballs become cryballs. Like, That's right. Pay attention to those things because there is creative gold in there. That's right. And who knew something like a a piece of research that Annette LaRoe did. You know what I mean? Like it's a piece of research which sometimes you'd be like, oh, that's so dry. It's research. But Uh, it gave me a strong feeling. That's right. And strong enough to be like, I need to spend time with this to make something out of it and get my arms around it so that I can, for me, it's a lot about synthesizing and understanding myself and being able to be like, and now I put it away. Now mm-hmm. I'm at peace. Like, mm-hmm. And now I can be like, what's the next thing that I need to understand? Mm-hmm. So that's why I wanted to do this reverse spark to, to just show you Some sparks are everywhere. Sparks and you can make stuff out of them. And please, just $1.99 on iTunes. There you go. I'm just kidding. I, I'm saying it for you because it's just, uh, I'm so proud of it. <laughs> I really think it's good. <laughs> Pridefulness is a sin. Need my headphones. Thanks to our sponsors. Hi. We don't have sponsors. We don't have sponsors. Do we? Or maybe we do by now. Ghostlake.com. Wild success and sponsorship has been sponsored. We can't even fit them all in. I'm sorry for all the sponsor breaks. Well, who's your... Today, as of today, who's your dream sponsor? Oh, come on. And remember, to me every time. No, I don't. But remember, whoever it is, they also, they send you either like a gift certificate or a box of free shit. Who is it? No, you know who? I just came to mind. It's out of anger. Who? It's New York Health and Racket Club that keep charging my card every month, even though I've said I want to, I want out. That's illegal. I know, but I, now they're sponsoring our podcast, so I forgive them. (laughs) Now it's all worked out. out Now they're paying me back. Sparks come from many different places. Mm -hmm. See? Do you want to name your favorite sponsor? Oh, oh. uh, I'm going to say, what do I want? I want a Rolex. (laughs) (laughs) For the goodie bags. Thank you so much for the goodie bags. Thank you, Rolex. I love it. I love my new watch. And gold with diamonds. Favorite. I love it. Susan... My spark. I'm today. so excited. This is when I get excited. What you got for me? Um, today's spark is called Dead Poet Society. Wait. Mm-hmm. 
I feel like this is a bait and switch. It might be. I mean, it's it's not. You're like, it's, it's not the movie star Robin about Williams the movie, and Knox Overstreet. Yeah. Oh, he mm. was so good. I know. So here's a fun fact. I only recently discovered that both Susan and I have an affinity for the sentiment that Ralph Waldo Emerson often wrote about this idea of forging your own path. Oh, word. You know, he said... Did he write that? Well, he said, do not go where the path may lead. Go instead where there is no path and leave a trail. Oh. And he wrote the poem, The Road Not Taken, to Wait a minute. diverged no, in the wood. No, 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 Robert Frost. Um, That's Robert Frost. Uh, you know what? That's Robert Frost, Susan. <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> Sorry. Sorry. Um... Yes. I was like, I have that refrigerator like, magnet. I was just going to say your refrigerator magnet. That's right. So I just recently discovered that you and I have Not this Not to affinity. be a basic bitch, but I fucking love that poem. I fucking love it too. And that's why I was like, we this concept of the road less taken or the road not taken, taking your own I'm path. I'm psyched you were doing this because... I, I wish what this was gonna. Well, it should be what it wants to be. What? I was like, so I, I recently, my spark right I now. recently, <laughs> could you, could you it's refashion your spark? I recently heard somebody talking about that poem, and I was like, I don't understand that poem at all, or I understood it to a certain level, but I was like, I've been the road not taken. Yeah. Have you been like butchering its meaning? No, or something? I think I was like, if it has seven levels of meaning, oh. I was like just chilling at level three. Like level two. And level I was three. like, this goes deeper. Well, the refrigerator magnet doesn't cover it all. Why don't you go fuck yourself? <laughs> I'm just kidding. I love that I'm magnet. I'm totally kidding. I love that magnet too. too. Yeah. And that like got me thinking about this spark because um, I remember distinctly proposing that that quote was like our senior year quote. <laughs> yes. That's right. Seaman High School, 1989. Seaman High School? What did you just say? Seaman. S E A. sorry. My, con- my condolences to okay. you. Seaman as in a Viking. What w- I was going to say, know. what was your mascot? The Vikings. Okay. Yeah, but we did sometimes play the Topeka High Trojans. You know what those oh, headlines God. were like. Mm-hmm. Sparks right there. Take it and make sparks, it. Sparks, sparks. <laughs> so anyway, um, I think I was in high school when I first encountered like Emerson, Frost, Whitman, all of those. Like <laughs> Emerson, not like, Lake, Palmer, all yes, of those all classic of those guys. rock guys. Love those guys. Sorry, I just keep pulling you off your spark. You know what? I expect it by now. Go ahead. It's like, why? Why do we heed? You. Um, and I think it was like, well, not until very late. Like I grew up in Kansas. We just talked about that. I'm, poetry was not something that was know, <laughs> maybe valued as much as it should sure. be. Um, but I did learn a little bit about it. And then in June of 89, right after I graduated is when the movie Dead Poets Society oh, came sure. out. Yes, yeah. yes, yes. And I was smitten with this, just this grandiose idea of like schools with like 200 year traditions. And this wh- is, is this shaping up to be a perfect compliment to my, I don't know. Cause you know, mine, it's not going, All right. it's not yeah. going, it's going somewhere to, yeah, surprising. Going somewhere yes. Else. Yes. Well, maybe not that surprising, but you know. We'll see, is my answer to that. Um, <laughs> we'll, we'll see. see. 
Um, but I was really, really smitten. And I was so like excited by that concept of having this passionate teacher and all of these traditions and this idea of like being spoken to by dead poets from the grave, you know, it was so, I don't know. Anyway, like I said, we didn't have a lot of that kind of feeling in Kansas. Um, so a couple months ago, one of America's most popular and best-selling poets is died. This, is this a Mary Oliver jam? Her name was Mary Oliver. Fuck you. Fuck this you, Susan. Awesome. No, you. <laughs> no, blew you. blew out my mic. <laughs> I cannot believe you. Are you sparking on Mary Oliver? I'm sparking on Mary Oliver. I am in love with you. I love you too. And I thought you might. I thought you might love this. I love her. You know, I. she died in January of this year. She yeah. was 83. And when she passed, I learned more about her than I ever knew before. You know, I think that like there are popular... Little bits and things, probably much like the two roads diverging, you know, in a wood. A couple of lines here and there that like are so popular, but then there's so much more. Can I just say out loud? Yeah. There is nowhere else on the planet I'd rather be than sitting (laughs) right here, right now. Oh, you're going to love, we're going to have some fun here. Bring it to me. So a couple things I thought were interesting is like she grew up in a very dysfunctional family. She grew up in Ohio. Did you know that? I did know that because a lot of her... Did she grow up in in, um, southwestern Ohio? That I don't know. I'm pretty sure she did because a lot of her writing... um, I was like, this is my neck of the woods. The the town she refers to, the the things, the rivers she refers to, topography, animals... native indigenous people yeah i was like this is my neck of the woods that's right yeah and what's so fascinating about her eventually she did move to florida but for so long because of the things she wrote about people were like you should travel you should see this you should that and she's like "Mm, i like my neck of the woods i like my walks my paths my sights and was she natural growth or was she um concerted cultivation you know what i don't know but now i'm gonna ask that of every person (laughs) so what are you you can kind of tell you can smell it yeah you can smell it well she had a really rough childhood so i suspect and and i read that she was like neglected by her parents she was sexually abused i don't know by who but so it wasn't i wouldn't say she was you you know cultivated in any way yeah um, but she said that because of this rough childhood, she made a world out of words, and that was her salvation. Two things she said she loved from a very early age were nature and the natural world, and the dead poets, she said, were her pals when she was growing up. Holy okay. shit. Okay. So... A lot of her poems, she got her ideas from these long walks that you're talking about. Um, and I thought, like, I thought for sure we could both relate to, like, her upbringing in a lot of yeah. ways. I think it was very working class. Yeah. Um, her dad was a teacher. Uh, my dad was a teacher. Wow. Her her mom worked as a secretary in the school. My stepmom was, like, the executive assistant, thank you very much, <laughs> at the school. Um, so... Anyway, I just thought, God, there's just so much more connection than I than I realized. Um, of course, I had been familiar with like the line from the summer day, 
tell me what is it you plan to do with your one wild and precious life, which has had a resurgence because of that movie. Um, oh, Reese Witherspoon was in it. The Wild. Sweet Home yeah. Alabama. Yeah, Wild. Oh. No. Good guess. Though. Good guess. <laughs> Thank Good you. Good guess. A little more recent. Wild. Um, yeah, Cheryl Strayed, right? Uh-huh. Strayed. Yeah. Strayed. Yep. One of those. She used that like in her book. Um, so Mary firmly believed that poetry mustn't be fancy. She lived for many decades with her longtime partner, Molly Malone Cook. She first published in her 20s. She has more than 20 volumes of work to her credit. She won a Pulitzer, a National Book Award, but she really wasn't motivated by these critical awards. Um, in fact, like her her she was most known for like how accessible her work was uh-huh. to people um it is it to me it reminds me it gives me the same feeling though it's for an adult readership as opposed to for young people but it gives me the same feeling that Laura Ingalls Wilder does oh. that sort of like just a cool breeze blowing mm-hmm. over tall grass kind of feeling that's right yeah that's a amazing way to describe it i'm an amazing wordsmith (laughs) you are Um, but it really does like some of those i it's crazy i I mean i guess i it's not uncommon i think about her writing all the time and was thinking about it as recently as in the last 24 hours really yes i was having a discussion with somebody and they're really really going through it and like all different areas of their life oh there's so so much that they they're so from her and i was like she has that piece of poetry which i don't have at my fingertips and i don't have memorized but it's about it's about mental illness and like the like the carefully pulling out the the stitches of embroidery like just like the slow work of of Mm. getting well and healing and i was like this This is going to be some mary oliver slow work for you so i've just been thinking about her i think about yeah i think about her writing all the time and it is accessible like you're saying amazing and so accessible that some critics kind of put it down for that not at first not at first but um here's a few examples of just the kind of accessibility um It seems simple, but it's so deep, right? So she wrote, what I want in my life is to be willing to be dazzled, to cast aside the weight of facts, and maybe even to float a little above this difficult world. She wrote, it is a serious thing just to be alive on this fresh morning in this broken world. And people were like, did she write that yesterday? That's crazy. Right? Yeah. That, that's, it's what's incredible. And then, of course, she's quite famous for this. Instructions for living a life. Pay attention. Be astonished. Tell about it. Ugh. So those are like just some simple ones. Um, there's a writer named Ruth Franklin that said the way she writes these poems, it feels like prayers. She channels the voice of somebody who it seems might possibly have access to God. And I think that, like, that's why so much of it is so popular. The brevity of some of her poems is what, like, endeared her work to a broader public. Clerics quoted her work in sermons. Poetry therapists used her work. Composers set it to music. Yes, I just had a spark. hand in the air. I just yes. had a spark. Bart Freundlich, if you're listening to me. Uh, 
Arch, I'm sure you're not, but if you are, you need to write a screenplay about Mary <gasps> Oliver and Julianne Moore. Oh. You need to play Mary Oliver. Oh, please do that. Bam. Boom. We're Bam. done for the day. No, I'm serious. Boom. She, that Whoa. would be great casting. That would be amazing. You just get some of those thick yeah. 70s glasses. Uh, oh my God. Julie, you're going to be great in that movie. Sorry, go ahead. <laughs> you're That's going to be phenomenal. It's a good spark. Um, but basically, like Mary enjoyed a following that it's safe to say most poets did not enjoy, at least not in their lifetime. Um, and with the popularity, and she actually sold books. Um, and as time went on, critics, of course, got yeah, they critical. Yeah, they got more critical. So I, I really think... Wait, meaning that they enjoyed her work more? No, or they, they picked more? it apart more. It was like, this is so simplistic. Fuck off. And you do it. You try. You do it, right? You try. <clears throat> Man in the arena, you try. And you and I have talked about this before. Like, what is it about, you know, once your work speaks to the masses, the need for critics to, like, pull back their support of it and, like, well, it's actually not that good. It's not that... I don't know. ...meaningful. And I, I think that's discouraging as an artist. <laughs> yeah, that, and we yes, do it to it each <laughs> other sometimes. <laughs> we you know? sure do. Like, well, not, not you cool. and I. Not you but, and I. But, like, the big we. Yes, we right? do. Let's stop doing that. Let's um, stop doing that. So, a couple things, you know, we've talked before about, like, our sparks. We, we, we're we trying not, folks, just so you know, we're trying not to just dedicate an entire spark to a human being who's lived for 83 years on this life because it's too much. It's, too, it's a seven-hour podcast. It's a seven-hour podcast, which, you know, maybe one day, a special episode. Oh, God. Um, a marathon <laughs> for charity. Um, so, I just pulled out a few things, you know. Great. Um, because Mary often wrote about nature, she was inevitably compared to her dead poet pals, Whitman, mm-hmm. Robert Frost, and others. She was, you know, now she's part of her own dead poet society. Wow. And she's, um, she's part of that. Um, here's one of her many, 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 many poems about nature, Watering the Stones. Every summer I gather a few stones from the beach and keep them in a glass bowl. Now and again, I cover them with water and they drink. There's no question about this. I put tinfoil over the bowl tightly, yet the water disappears. This doesn't mean we ever have a conversation or that they have the kind of feelings we do, yet it might mean something. Whatever the stones are, they don't lie in the water and do nothing. Some of my friends refuse to believe it, even though they've seen it. But a few others, I've seen them walking down the beach holding a few stones and they look at them rather more closely now. Once in a while, I swear, I've even heard one or two of them saying hello, which I don't think harms anyone or anything, does it? Susan, when I go home to Florida, I talk to the trees. You do. Do you talk to your little succulent plants? Do you talk uh, to your mountainside? I do a little bit. Yeah, I guess I kind of do. I just wonder. Sometimes I get up and I go outside and I'm just like, hi, everybody. Yeah. You're blooming. You look beautiful. Keep going. It's an interesting little phenomenon. I have more plants now than I've ever had in my entire (laughs) life. Too many to talk to. Oh, boy. And um, (laughs) I feel like a Kathy cartoon. Ooh. Um, and I, I do when I touch them and like water them and Mm. admire them and look at their growth, I 
get a feeling. It's that, what should we call that feeling? It's like, it's the Laura Ingalls Wilder feeling. It's the Mary Oliver feeling. Mm. It's that, that feeling of just like looking into nature's face and us smiling at each other. You know what oh, I mean? I like Where, and I was also saying to Nathan the other day that the thing that I love about plants as opposed to other, I don't know how you characterize those things, hobbies, mm-hmm. is that you put, you know, like you give it some water from time to time, you might fertilize it. You keep it near a window so it can have sun and you go away. And when you come back, it's changed. And I was like, what else wow. does that? What else, what does, else that? does that? It's growing on its own. It's, it is having a whole life. Yeah. It's having a whole it's life. It's exactly that. It delights me. Susan, I'd be delighted if you would read this poem I'm, I chose for oh you. Oh, God. I've got to read without yeah. just a cold read. It's a cold read. You oh can my do God, it. My vision. I just didn't want my voice the whole time. You got, you got this. Okay. Oh, you're you trying to make me cry. No, you won't. This is called I Have Decided. This is a cold read. I don't know how it ends. I just saw the I just saw the first line. I have decided to find myself a home in the mountains, somewhere high up where one learns to live peacefully in the cold and the silence. It's said that in such a place certain revelations may be discovered, that what the spirit reaches for may be eventually felt, if not exactly understood, slowly, no doubt. I am not talking about a vacation. Of course, at the same time, I mean to stay exactly where I am. Are you following me? You hippie, you goddamn yeah. dirty hippie. I know. That's Thank beautiful. You for that, right? And and I feel that way. I wondered. I wondered if you felt that way about moving to the mountainside. I feel I've all never sort of, seen that poem before, uh, uh, but I guess she's got so 20 beautiful. slim, beautiful little she's volumes and volumes. I have not read all of them. Yeah. But I'm kind of fascinated with this nature thing, because if we're if we're totally honest here, which I think we are, with our tight little group of listeners, <laughs> and our tight little buttholes. <laughs> yes. I. Uh, you know, you and I have both lived in New York for a very long yeah. time. Yeah. And if I'm honest with myself, I think I devalued for quite some time the place that nature could hold mm-hmm. in me as a human being, mm-hmm. but also as an artist and, you know, work inspired by nature. I think I, I don't know, I think I sort of put it out of my mind, put it out of my um yeah. Because it wasn't a part of my daily life. Yeah. I think I tried to diminish its importance. Yeah. And now in Florida, <laughs> I have had people come to visit in Florida and they're New Yorkers. And I'll be like, oh my God, we have this eagle. This eagle lives in this pine tree next door. Um, and I'll talk about that. I'll talk about like, oh my God, one day these vultures ripped a squirrel apart, like right here. You can like even find a little skeleton bone. Um I would be talking about the birds, the animals, the trees. What do they make of it? What do the New Yorkers I make of it? I had a friend that was literally like, if you don't shut the fuck up, I hear about another <laughs> fucking bird. Like they were just like, I see pigeons. That's it. I don't care about the birds. <sighs> but And one day, Susan, I have to tell you, this was like so perfectly on cue. Literally one day a friend was visiting and she'd had enough. I could tell she'd had enough. And she was like, okay. No more squirrel talk. Okay, we're good. Just as she's saying that, 
three horses come barreling down the street. They weren't wild horses. That would make a, a better Did story. Did they have riders? No, they were. They had gotten out of someone's you know stable stable and they were running home but it had like this they're all galloping like in (laughs) unison by and i was like so you see this is the kind of stuff that happens here she was like i can't believe that just like on cue on cue but i just wondered if you feel that way now when now that there's more nature in your life i feel like i lived in the city for decades and i love love, love, love nature, but I am quiet and peace and Mm -hmm. space. But I just like took that part of me that loved that and Mm -hmm. just kind of like um, compartmentalized it for a while. Yeah. And then I moved to Inwood and had this apartment that had this like ridiculous balcony. Yes. And I started growing plants on the balcony and I had like 70... I had like crops, like I was growing corn, oh kale, God. tomatoes, squash. Like I was running a farmer's market mm-hmm. off of that balcony. And I was like, I need to do this in the country. Like mm-hmm. I was like, I need to, I, it's time. I'm, yeah. t- I'm old enough now. I want to have that piece. You know what I, I wonder sometimes like, is this, because this is happening at a certain age, I'm like, is this because I'm old now, I'm getting old, that I'm like suddenly appreciating nature or is it just the circumstances? But we have these oak trees in our yard and sometimes they like fill me with tears and I think the act of planting a tree is the most selfless act. These trees, the person who planted them did never got to see them in their glory. They're a hundred years old. So you're just like, you did that for the next group of people to enjoy because you had to know. It's a nice you metaphor. You were never going to. Put that in your poem, Mary right? Oliver. Plant okay. a tree. Okay, plant a tree. I love that. All right, so I also wanted to bring this topic up because I was surprised. And I, I kind of want to look up like when did she write this? You and I have talked numerous times about our goals for more creation, less consumption. Create more, consume less, baby. Mary wrote this. Impossible to believe we need so much as the world wants us to buy. I have more clothes, lamps, dishes, paper clips than I could possibly use before I die. Oh, I would like to live in an empty grass. No planks, no plastic, no fiberglass. And I suppose sometime I will. Old and cold, I will lie apart from all this buying and selling (laughs) with only the beautiful earth in my heart. Fuck. So. And that is where Mary is now. We're going to. Yeah, I was going to say she stopped consuming. She is now a mass now. She's a member of a very elite club. Poets who will continue to speak to us for generations from the grave. I love it. Before we wrap this, I just want to say one more thing. I don't. I want to talk about Mary Oliver forever. She also wrote, to pay attention, this is our endless and proper work. And in her poem, When Death Comes, she wrote, when it's over, I want to say all my life, I was a bride married to amazement. And I feel a little bit like that's what, that's the work we're trying to do here on the spark file, yeah. train ourselves to yeah. be paying attention, yes. 
little messages from the grave, little messages yes. from statistics and research. Little messages everywhere. like we were watching some, let's say, let's be honest, fair to Midland television last night. That's right, fair to Midland. And something flashed across the screen and I was like, there's a spark, but I'm not going to say it out loud spark. because I'm going to surprise you with it later. And I was like, we are training our brains. I love it so much to, we're on the hunt, we're on the That's lookout. Right. And it kind of, it has made the world, just in the short time we've been doing this, it's it's fun, it's vivid. It's so fun, yeah. all day. And it's like you have a little secret. You're like, wow, that, that made me feel a little yeah. tingly. That made some, you know... That made some sparks fly in my brain. But whatever your whatever your creative outlet is, whatever your self expression is, I think it's it's incumbent upon the maker to have their their it, it to not be passive to like That's sort right. of have your eyes and your ears and your heart open That's right. and your brain and to be like letting those it's like krill just like letting krill like move through the whale krill just like like you have mm. to you got you got to that nutritious absorption right. krill how's that how's for that? a metaphor That's mary crazy. oliver i feel like a regular mary oliver <laughs> <laughs> In the words of Mary Oliver, that's the big question, the one the world throws at you every morning. Here you are, alive. Would you like to make a comment? Thank you, Mary. Thank you, Mary. Mm, here we are, alive. Let's make some comments. Let's <sighs> make some stuff. Fucking hell. You, you Mary Olivered me. I did. What a great I surprise. Did. It's so funny because before we started, you were like, I don't know if this is uh, Mary Oliver. You can expect that every that week. Is the That's my little Like vampire. the highest quality. P.S. Those things you shared, so many of them, I have not heard. There's so much. And there's so no much. Joke. We and could do 20 hours oh on man. her. I, I, it makes me, maybe, yeah. maybe we could post it on social media, like some of our favorites. Oh, And awesome. if you all are listening and you have favorites, Please you'll let us them. know. But man, is she. She's still speaking to us. She is a spectacular, creative being. Fuck mm. me. I hope mm. that all mm. of this put mm. another bunch of sparks in your spark file. I That's know it right. did for me, Lori Camion. Listen, listen to me when I say this. If there's a spark you would like us to explore, if you've got a spark that you'd like to share, will you please email us at thesparkfile at gmail.com and be sure to subscribe to this shenanigan on whatever, wherever you get your podcasts. <laughs> As the children say, subscribe, rate, and review. Listen up. If something tickles your fancy and gets your creative juices flowing, it's your turn to take this little spark and fan it into a beautiful little flame. You got to write it. You got to recite it. You got to knit it. You got to go on and get it. You got to take it. And, and you gotta make it. it. We'll see you on the next episode of The Spark File. When I bump into something that inspires me, I dump it in my Spark File. Could be something that I wanna make or how I wanna be. I pump it in my Spark File. I jump into my Spark File. Let's open up the spark fire. 
Hi friends, it's Susan Blackwell from The Spark File, your one-stop shop for creativity where our doors are open. And if you smell something delicious, that's because Laura Camion and I have been cooking up something special, something designed to make a big difference in people's creative lives. Enter The Brave Creative, a free five-day guided adventure to rediscover the vitality energy, and possibility in your creative process. Whether you're a writer, a performer, a baker, a candlestick maker, navigating the creative process can be a bear. But never fear, there's power in numbers at the Spark File. So let's link arms and make the trip together. It's May 13th through 17th, 7 p.m. Eastern, less than one hour per day. And if you can't join live, don't worry about it. You can watch the replay. Join us by going to thesparkfile.com to register. And hey, if you're not familiar with The Spark File, first of all, welcome to the podcast. Secondly, we work with hundreds of creatives of all different kinds who are ready to take their next big step. We help folks fear less and create more in a community that is so fun and vibrant. And if you have joined us before, know that we are going deep with the Brave Creative. So buckle up, Buttercup. It is going to be an awesome adventure. Go to thesparkfile.com to register, but do it soon because it all starts May 13th. thesparkfile.com. Register now. Register now.